Don't worry, Kelly, I'm not going to play it. Just putting it up here as a approach.
Father, we thank you that there is no name above that name. It is the most powerful name. That name is so powerful. Wherever we are in our homes right now, you can reach down 
and take away our fear. You can reach down and take away our worry, take away our discouragement. Father, we ask that for those that need healing this day, Father, that your great physician would just reach down and touch that house. May they feel the living and the holy presence of God the Father and Jesus. Father, because we know that above all names, he has the most power. We have nothing to fear. There's no COVID that can take it. There's no government that can take it. We know that you are above all things. And for that, we are so, so grateful. So Jesus, I ask now that you speak through our pastor as he brings us your words, God. May they touch our hearts in such a way to, to fire us up, to make us go and be the church. Lord, as we give in all things, give ourselves our time and everything we are. May we give thanks to you for all that you have given us. And we pray all of these things in the holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. I wish that I could be with you in person, but I'm so grateful. Uh, one of the things I'm really thankful for is that we can continue to connect even over our live stream right now, whether you're in Costa Mesa or you're around California or far beyond. And so for those of you who are, are checking in with us, you know, throughout America or even beyond that, I just want to welcome you and, and grateful that you're here. Today we are wrapping up a series that's taken us about three months to slowly walk through Paul's letter that he wrote to the, the believers living in Philippi. And this is a letter that he wrote intentionally to say thank you. Thank you for a financial gift that they had sent to him while he was under house arrest in Rome, awaiting a trial that could very well uh, end in his execution. But because he sees himself as a spiritual father to this church in Philippi, to this community of believers living there, he takes the time to explain to them like a father would what it means to live as followers of Jesus in a world that bends a knee to Nero. So he's taking the time to let them know, hey, here's what it looks like to live according to Jesus's values, the kingdom of God's values, as opposed to the values of Rome. Rather than looking to push others down so that you can rise up a little bit, look to use the strength of your identity as a child of God to lift others up. Use the gifts that you have to benefit others around you. He also uses that time to encourage them to seek unity within the body of believers because there was some dissension going on, as in any family. For some of you, as you gathered on Thanksgiving, you were well aware of some underlying dysfunction. And Paul's aware that there's dysfunction in any group of believers. And so he's saying, hey, I want to I talk to you about what it means to put up with and love people even when they're not all that lovable. But as he has been writing this letter to say thanks, he ends where he began with a declaration of thanks. And so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And we're just going to read the last 13 verses of it. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good for you to share in my trouble. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They're a fragrant offering 
an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he signs off with these last couple of verses that we'll read. Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So this is the end of Paul's letter. And he takes these last few verses to thank them for the gift that they sent, which was on the surface the reason why he originally wrote the letter. But what's interesting to me, what really stands out to me is the way that he really qualifies what he's saying, right? He, he doesn't just come straight out and say, hey, thanks so much for sending it, period. He kind of goes, thanks for your gift. Not that I needed it, because uh, I'm totally content as I am, but I'm really grateful that you gave it, so thanks. And I'm wondering, why is it that Paul would qualify his words that way? What's going on for him? And I can't help but think <laughs> that he probably felt a lot like I do about the topic of giving, the t- about the topic of money. Because I recognize in myself there is this natural propensity to avoid all conversations of money when it comes to the church. It's probably my least favorite conversation. And the reason is I recognize that there is a whole history of abuses of people who have used the pulpit and have used the gospel as a way to get something from people. So much so, whether it be preachers or televangelists that have used their pulpit to satisfy their own greed, or at least seemingly to satisfy their own greed, that people have gotten the impression that God is after your money. And if that's an impression that you carry within you, that you think that the gospel or that the God and the creator and sustainer of everything is after your money, then I want to apologize on behalf of people who have stood in my position and have articulated things that gave you that impression because that is the furthest thing from the truth. And today, there's a part of me that recognizes I don't like to talk about money at all because it's such a sensitive subject. And yet, at the same time, I can't help but acknowledge that it is a central part of the Bible talks about our money and our stuff. Not because the people of God were after money, but because the people of God recognized that there is no greater rival for our worship than our money. Right? When we talk about worship, We talk about ascribing worth to something. We tend to worship that which we think can give us control over that which we fear. And think about it. Money is perhaps the single greatest rival God that suggests, I can protect you. I can defend you. I can be that safety net on that rainy day when when life hits you. I'm here to protect you. And so it's understandable why people have a natural propensity to focus on money and to worship money. And for that reason, the Bible actually has a lot to say about it. Not because God needs our stuff, but because God recognizes a rival when he sees one. And so, in the Bible, there are 2,200 verses that talk about our money or our stuff. There's about 15% of Jesus' teaching focused on our money. When he, when he talks about um, the, the parables that Jesus brought, one, over one-third of his parables that he spoke on was about our money. Not because he was asking people to give, but because he recognized that money was a rival God, and so he was constantly saying, you've got to avoid this golden calf that you want to grab hold of and put your trust in. He was constantly calling them out about that. He said things like this, you can't serve two masters. Either you will be devoted to the one and hate the other, or vice versa. You can't serve both God and money. It doesn't work that way. 
And so Jesus spent an inordinate amount of time. He talked about money more than any other subject except for the kingdom of God. It was the number two topic he talked about, not because he needed their money, but because he was after their hearts, and where your treasure is, there your heart follows. And so we're going to talk about it, as much as I want to avoid it. We're going to talk about it today, but I suspect that Paul probably recognized the same sort of discomfort around the topic, because let's be honest, charlatans who will use a position of power, a pulpit, to try to benefit themselves are nothing new. It's not something that was given rise with, you know, televangelists. There were people in Paul's day who were, who were traveling from town to town and would come with a philosophy or a theological perspective on the world, and they would try to get people to give to their ministry over and over, so much so that there was actually a, first, or a second century satirist who wrote this about some of these traveling people. He said, they collect, they collect tribute going from house to house, or as they themselves express it, they shear the sheep, and they expect many to give, either out of respect for their cloth or for fear of their abusive language. In other words, you should give to me because I'm a man of the cloth and I'm sharing the gospel with you. Or you should give to me because if you don't, I'm going to tell everybody else why, how bad you are. And I'm going to use my position of authority to tear you down. So Paul recognized there were people like that out there. And he recognized how easily it would be for people to begin to equate him as one of them. Because like them, he went from town to town to town sharing the gospel. He was an itinerant preacher. Like them, he was dependent upon people supporting him, although he also went out of his way to support himself. He made tents to pay his own way, although he still was supported by people, would stay with people where he went. And he, he spent a lot of time going out of his way to make sure that the gospel never got intertwined with greed. That the gospel never got intertwined with you have to give something in order to have a relationship with God. He wanted to try to separate that out because he did not want the gospel to be undermined by money, this rival God. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, writing to believers. He said, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. For Paul, he did not want money to be an impediment to the gospel. didn't want it to get in the way. And so he goes out of his way to try to pay his own way. And he goes out of his way to try to separate his gratitude for their generosity with the clarification that my ministry is not dependent or motivated by my desire for you to give. It was never my intent. That's not my focus. My focus is you coming to know Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. I want you to know him like I know him. I want you to taste and see how good he is and to be a part of his kingdom. That's Paul's focus. And so as he wraps up his letter, and we're going to walk through these last few verses, he is walking a very fine line of showing his gratitude while at the same time showing how his perspective on money is very different from how everybody else around there treats money. So he says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. We may not recognize this, but in Paul's day, that word content was a word they were pretty familiar with. 
it was a word, there was a whole school of philosophy called the Stoics. They used that term contentment over and over. Because what the Stoics preached was that we will never find our contentment in our circumstances because our circumstances are just way too, you know, wishy-washy. Some days you're having a great day and then something happens and you're having a terrible day. And if you try to have your contentment, if you hang your contentment on your circumstances, you're, you're, you're clipping in for a roller coaster of life. And I think we would all agree with that. Paul certainly would agree with that. But where Paul would disagree with the Stoics, powerfully disagree with them, is how we go about finding our contentment. Because the Stoics would say, we find our contentment inwardly, through seeking virtue, through trying to be good people. We will ourselves to be people who aren't overcome by the world. And they found their strength internally, and Paul did just the opposite. He looked externally. He looked to the author and perfecter of his faith, to his true north, to God, and he said, this is where I find my contentment. This is where I find my stability. When the storms of life are raging and I find myself walking on the water, if I were to try to rely upon myself, I would sink just like Peter did. But if I keep my eyes fixed on God, then even though the waves come crashing into me, even though we get another declaration from our governor that we can't meet, I'm not going to be overcome by that. Even though somebody that we love is sick or dies, I'm not going to be overcome by that because my hope is not in my safety or my comfort. My hope is in Christ. And so he says this, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's his secret. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Unlike the Stoics who say, my strength is from within, Jesus, or Paul says, my strength comes from the one who calls me. My strength comes from keeping my eyes fixed on him and following him and allowing his values to shape my values. And even when I stumble, and which of us hasn't stumbled? Which of us won't stumble today? But even when I stumble, knowing he's still there, he still loves me, that my identity is not dependent upon how well I do, but upon simply following him. He, Paul continues, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Now, in what ways has the Philippian church shared in Paul's troubles? They haven't been arrested like he has. They're not locked up, chained to a Roman guard, awaiting trial in Rome. They're in Philippi. In what ways have they shared in his troubles? Well, Paul has made this point several times throughout his letter that by their giving, by their financial support, they are partnering with him in ministry. They're joining with him in the advancement of the gospel. And this is true, that those who give are partners with those who do the work, who are called into the field. I know that, for instance, Bill would, would affirm that you have partnered with him. Our little church has partnered with him and Fresh Beginnings Ministries to feed over a thousand veterans and their families over the course of Thanksgiving. We're really grateful for your generosity. Most of us did not get to pack those boxes. Most of us did not get to deliver those boxes. There's a handful of you that gave hours over the last couple of weeks, and we're grateful for that. But the way in which we partnered with Fresh Beginnings and Bill was through our financial gift. And Paul's saying the same thing. By giving, you are a partner with me. Thank you for giving. Moreover, verse 15, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desired your gifts. Okay, guys, this isn't about me getting something. I don't want my gospel to be a means for my greed. It's not that I desired your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have already received full payment and more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. 
And here's a huge perspective shift that Paul is bringing to us. He's suggesting to them that they're giving. He's grateful for it, but not for the reasons that we might think. Not because he gets to line his pockets and live in some comfort. He's not comfortable. He's living under house arrest. He's saying that he is grateful for their generosity because of what it means about their hearts. Remember how I said worship is ascribing worth to something? Worship, our giving is an act of worship. He says this yet again here. That their gift is a declaration to God, to others, but most importantly to themselves. That their money is not their God. God is their God. And by giving towards the ministry of advancing the gospel, they are showing that money doesn't have a grip on them. There's this French philosopher I was reading earlier this week that writes this. I just, I just think it's a really wonderful reminder. His name is Jacques Ellul, and he writes this. There is one act par excellence which profanes money by going directly against the law of money. An act for which money is not made. This act is giving. Now let me, let me translate it for the non-French philosopher types in our, our group. Money is something that tends to get its tentacles into us, tends to have control. Remember, those things which we worship become our masters. And there are many people who are mastered by their money so much so that they will sacrifice time with their family. They will sacrifice sleep. They will sacrifice comfort for it. They will do anything and everything they can to get more of it because the more of it they have, the more comfortable they feel. And the more of it they have, the more it has them. And what this philosopher is suggesting is there is one act by which we can begin to disentangle the fingers of money from grasping our hearts. One thing we can do to treat it as less than holy so that its power is broken in us. One thing that money was never intended to be used for and it completely weakens its grip on us. And that act is to give it away. And for Paul, he is simply reminding them that they're giving, he's grateful for it. Not because he needed it, but because they needed it. Their giving is just as much about their heart and their devotion and their discipleship as it is about the care of the kingdom of God. It has just as much to do with their heart. Furthermore, He wraps up this thought in verse 19 with these words. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now that's a a verse that there's a whole lot of prosperity gospel preachers who would love to grab a hold of that verse and have grabbed hold of that verse and declare it. God will provide everything you need out of his glorious storehouse of riches. In other words, you can't outgive God. We've all heard that. And there's truth in that. But not in the way that the prosperity gospel preachers would suggest. Because if you just rip that one verse, verse 19, out of its context and splash it up on the screen, you can easily begin to think that if you give a little bit to God, God's going to give you a whole lot more of the same thing. Money, comfort, security. And I want to simply suggest that that is the furthest thing from what Paul is saying. Remember the context that Paul is writing into. He's writing from prison. Has God provided for his needs? You betcha. But has God kept him comfortable and safe? Not on your life. Furthermore, listen to... Listen to the words in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, because he uses the same words to make a very different declaration. He says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, there's that term again, God's glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Apparently, according to Paul, God's glorious riches doesn't just pertain to money. Now it can, 
God can provide financially for us, and he does provide financially for us. But what do we need as sons and daughters of God who are walking through a broken, sin-scarred world? Not money. That's not our greatest need. What we need more than financial stability is we need his presence, we need his empowerment, we need his encouragement, we need direction, we need wisdom, we need a sense of confidence in our identity in him so that we don't have to look to another person because people have a tendency to tear one another down, not build them up. We need to find our identity in him so that we won't be overwhelmed by the, the by the ebb and flow of life. And so, the point that he's making here is not God will give you more money if you'll just give a little bit of money. What he's saying is that our satisfaction in life will not be tied to our affluence. Our confidence won't be dependent upon the level of our bank account. That if we can keep our eyes fixed on him, that is the source of our confidence and our strength. That is the riches that he gives us, is his presence in us. All right. As I always love to kind of do when I'm wrapping up a message, as we've kind of now walked through what Paul wrote, I always like to ask the question, so what? Okay, we've read this, great, we understand it a little bit more. So what does it mean for us today? What do we do with this? We have a few takeaways for us. The first thing that I want to emphatically remind us of is that God is not after your money. He's after your heart. It's a very different thing. Now, the reason he spends time talking about your money is because where your money is, where your treasure is, your heart tends to follow. So the act of giving is an act of saying, my heart values you more than this stuff, more than holding on to this thing. So God's after your heart. He's not interested in your money. Of course, the counter argument that some of you might be thinking in the back of your head is, yeah, but Eric, that's wonderful, that sounds great, but if nobody gave to Lighthouse Community Church, then how are you going to keep the lights on? And it's true right? If not a single person gave, at some point, we'd probably have to turn off the lights. We would have to probably shutter the doors, but God still would not lose. The kingdom of God would not be diminished because this building closed. Because as we, as we are reminded day after day, and as we see very powerfully right now, as you are gathering in your own homes, sitting on your couch, maybe with your family or your neighbors with you, It's never been about this building. This building is not the church. We are the church. And God will continue to use us regardless of whether or not we gather in this place. So it is not about perpetuating the building. It is about us being who God has called us to be, his sons and his daughters, ambassadors who have tasted and seen how good he is, and we live out of that. We live out his values in the spheres of influence where he's planted us, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, at your schools when you get to go, with your friends that you see, with people you see on the uh, the street, when you go to the park to take your dog for a walk, when, when, when you go outside to nail up the sign of your, your lost cat, right? And you, the people that you talk with right at that point. I don't know what you do with a cat. You don't take them for a walk. I love cats from a distance. Anyway, how do we treat other people? How do we live out our faith? That matters more than a building. And so the first thing is God's after your heart. He's not after your money. He's not dependent upon your money. Secondly, our giving is just as much about our own spiritual development as it is about caring for others in need. It's an act of discipleship, and it's a declaration of trust. It's saying, God, I trust you more than I trust this stuff. I believe that you love me. I believe that you are guiding me. 
And I know that you have called me to be generous with what you've entrusted to me because everything comes from you. And so rather than allowing my stuff to get a grip on my heart and to be my master and to allow it to control me, I want you to control me. And this is simply a way, my giving it away is simply a way of peeling the fingers of my heart off of my stuff and saying, God, it's all yours. Show me what you want me to do with my time, with my talents, and with my treasures. It's all yours. Help yourself to my life. Thirdly, and this is a really important thing for us to remember, God promises to care for our needs. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he will keep us comfortable or financially secure. And guys, this flies in the face of every prosperity preacher I have ever listened to. We love to make big promises that God will protect you from discomfort because, let's be honest, our comfort is one of our greatest American idols. We love to be comfortable. And if there's one thing that's been challenged in this season, it's our comfort. We're, we don't get to gather in person with one another. I don't have you right here for me to spit on as I'm talking, right? It, it makes me sad that we can't all clap at different points out of syncopation because we can't, you know, a bunch of white people can't clap at the same time. Um, but I love the fact that we get to gather and I miss gathering with you. I'm sorry, some of you have rhythm. I, I don't. But I miss gathering with you. That's uncomfortable. I, I miss being able to go to the store and get as much toilet paper as I want. Right? That's not comfortable. I miss sending my kids to school without having to, like, worry about face masks and all this kind of stuff. I miss that. Some of you don't get to send your kids at all to school. Some of you are teaching right now. You are very uncomfortable. Because you're trying to balance loving your classroom over Zoom. Some of you have been trying to connect with people, and you have to, you know, for, for Thanksgiving, how many of us had to make sacrifices? That's not comfortable. We don't like it. God, what are you going to do? How can you change this? And the reality is, God meets us in the midst of this. He never promised us that we would have easy, carefree lives. He never promised, follow me and you will be comfortable. He said, follow me. In this world, you're going to have trouble. I just want to warn you. But you can take heart in the fact that I've overcome the world. The coronavirus is not going to get the last word. Lockdowns are not going to get the last word. Not being able to gather together is not going to get the last word. And the point of this is to continue to follow me through the discomfort of this season because you will actually grow more in it than you would during those seasons of comfort where you don't have to worry about keeping your eyes on me. I can't help but think about the Israelites. Here are a people who found their identity in God, and yet so often they forgot to keep their eyes on him. So often they were lulled into a state of complacency by looking around at other people and saying, we want to be like them. We want a king like them. And what did God do? God marked them as a people grew them, perhaps the single most powerful moment that God grew their identity as a people was when he removed them from slavery in Egypt and led them through the wilderness. In that time, I mean, you read the Psalms. How many times do they point back to that moment where they were walking through the wilderness, dependent upon God for every mouthful of food and for every swallow of water, dependent upon God for their direction and their protection and their provision? That season of discomfort marked them, shaped their identity and their worldview more than any other moment in their history. Except for perhaps the birth of Christ, although many of them don't even recognize him as their Messiah, unfortunately. But they were shaped by their discomfort. Jesus 
was shaped by his discomfort. The disciples were shaped by their discomfort. God used them in the midst of it. And Paul writes this letter out of a time of discomfort. And yet he rejoices in the Lord because he recognizes that God's not distant when we're uncomfortable. God is with us in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the seasons of discomfort, and God uses even that. So does God care for us? You betcha. But it will not always look like him just giving you more money. That is not how he cares for us. He's a good, good father, as we've already sang this morning. He cares for us by allowing us to grow through our discomfort. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I simply want to remind us that our Father loves us. He's with us. And he invites us to peel back the fingers of our hearts from around our stuff and say, do you trust me more than this? And guys, I want to thank you for your partnership with our community church. I got to tell you, God has provided for us through this season. He's taken really good care of us. And I'm grateful for your continued financial support, but I'm not saying that because we need you to give. I'm saying that because I care about your discipleship to Christ. I care about the state of your hearts. And if you don't give here, I pray that you are giving somewhere. I pray that you are supporting someone, some ministry, that you're looking beyond yourself because it's about our hearts. Let me pray. Father God, we invite you to help yourself to us, to every part of us. I'm grateful for the reminder today that you're not after our money, that, that, is, that, that we're not just pocketbooks for you to pull out of, but that, we, that you care about our hearts, that you are after our devotion. And God, we confess that we place a whole lot of our trust in our stuff. We pray that you would help to, to disentangle our hearts and our worship from our things and our accumulation. We give thanks to you that you love us in spite of us, that you use us in spite of our limitations and our imperfections. We thank you that you continue to lead us even through this strange season That's that's gone on so much longer than we ever anticipated. Would you continue to guide us and strengthen us and give us hope? May you continue to use us as light in the darkness. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. And I personally would like to thank all of you. Um, Lighthouse played a big part and helping a thousand, over a thousand families over the last week. Many of you spent countless hours. I just want to say thank you to Jackie Cranston and, and to Randy and Patty Strait and to Diane and Byron and all of you that just helped us do amazing things in the last week. It was more than we've ever done and God was amazing. There are ways you can help us for Christmas. We have been notified that there are around 3,000 3, children who need to have Christmas and uh, fortunately Toys for Tots has joined with us and we will be able to provide them but we will need your help as well so army we're not done yet and we're going to encourage and lift up these people I know that it can be easy to get discouraged in this day and time sometimes you just got to sing out and say God if all things I'm going to do I'm going to come back to a heart of worship
for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. are so grateful you all chose to join us today. Before we finish up, one more song. We're going to ask God to open our eyes. Open the eyes of my heart that I might see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Sing again.
A couple of things. One, if you want to give, uh, you can go on our website, lighthousecommunity.com. You can give directly through there. Today, uh, even though we're not able to gather in person, we just wanted an opportunity to gather and, and, and share a meal together. And that meal is communion. It's a way of declaring to God that we remember Jesus' sacrifice. It is perhaps the most important meal that we get to share because it's something that unifies us. And so if you're in the area, I'd like to invite you to come down to our parking lot, drive through. Jeff and I will be out there totally masked up with our communion elements in single service, you know, and so come share communion with us. If you're not in the area, Barones, I'm talking to you, those of you up in Washington and elsewhere, I encourage you to have communion together as a family and just know that we are united in Christ. That's what makes us family. And for that, I am truly, truly thankful. We love you. Have a wonderful week.